I'll start by reading from Matthew chapter 3 on the preaching of John the Baptist. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can save yourself, that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the tree and therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." So John was a fire and brimstone preacher. All right, this evening we are on the identification of the Messiah. Remember, that was John's task. He is to identify the Messiah, the king of God's choosing. This is the last segment in our first topic, the coming of the king. So next week we will begin to look at the authentication of the king, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But we open with this baptism, baptism of John, and we'll see that it is different than believers' baptism in the church, Um, and it is also not something that was new with John. It was a custom of the Jews when John began baptizing. And in order to understand John's baptism, we have to understand what his task was. He is to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the herald of the king. Luke gives us a bit of information about when this took place, and the when is going to be important, because this is going to fulfill a prophecy given by Daniel about 550 years earlier. He says it's in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That is the most specific date he gives. But Caesar has two start dates. So it's a little difficult to tell when exactly Luke is um, describing here. Either AD 11, when he began to rule together with uh, uh, Caesar Augustus. It's not on the slide, though. Or in AD 14, when he began to rule on his own. I lean towards the A.D. 11 date, uh, because that's when Tiberius Caesar actually began to rule. Pontius Pilate was governor from A.D. 26 to 36, so we have a minimum date here. It has to be at least A.D. 26. If you look down a little further, we have that Licinius in Abilene was ruling until A.D. 30. That gives us an end date. It has to be sometime between A.D. 26 and A.D. 30. And it says that Jesus was about 30 years old. Now, in uh, in the Jewish culture, he can't be younger than 30. 30 is an important age for uh, being assumed eligible to teach. A rabbi is not younger than 30 years old. And no question ever arises about Jesus' young age. Jesus is not younger than 30. He is about 30. This does not mean he is exactly 30. In fact, I believe he was about 33 years old when he started his ministry uh, in AD 26, which makes him about 36 years old at the cross. 
Now, it says that the word of God came to John. In the Greek, there are two different words for word. One is logos, which we saw earlier, is the Aramaic phrase memra, which has the idea of a word, either spoken or written. Also the idea of logic, and it is a messianic term used by John to identify the Messiah as the memra of God. This is not the word that comes to John. What comes to John is the Greek word rhema, which is strictly a spoken word. In other words, God spoke to John when he called him as a prophet. And he gave John a task and a message. It says that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John has the duty of preparing Israel for the coming king preparing them by uh, a repentance movement. Israel is going to repent of their uh, unbelief. They're going to confess their sins, and they are going to accept the king when he comes. At least this is the purpose behind the baptism of John, but we will see that not all are baptized, and that will mean that not all align themselves with John's message, and not all are prepared for the coming of the king. All right, so who is John? John quotes from Isaiah 43 to identify himself. But there is another passage that speaks of a forerunner as well. This is Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple in the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in rabbinic theology, this messenger was supposed to be Elijah. Because at one chapter later, in Malachi 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, the Jews did not understand the two advents of Christ. And so they did not understand that the unnamed messenger in chapter 3 is not the same as the named messenger in chapter 4. In fact, this is not a, a means of referring back to Elijah. Elijah's name probably would have been written first and then referred to later as the messenger who was promised. But it comes in the other order, meaning that until they get to Malachi chapter 4, Elijah's name would be nowhere on their minds. These are two different messengers, and that was a mystery up until John came. Now, John comes with the message to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this repentance is a change of mind from sin to God. Sin has plagued the nation of Israel since its inception but they also have the promise of a sinless future when the king is reigning on his throne. They are to repent from their sins and turn to God for that salvation. But he also comes promising that the kingdom is at hand. Now, the church has uh, taken this phrase kingdom and turned it into something that it was never promised to be. It is not an ethereal kingdom in our hearts of Jesus reigning uh, spiritually in the church. He is our high priest. He is not yet reigning as king. In fact, he will not reign as king until there is a throne on this earth for him to reign on. And that will be in the physical land of Jerusalem, the literal throne of David. Because the kingdom was not a new concept in the New Testament. In fact, it is the oldest concept in scripture. In studying Genesis, we saw that God created this earth to be a throne to his universal kingdom, and he created a king to rule over it who failed. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, the, the rightful king over God's kingdom. But he also promised to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And they will be blessed by a seed descendant of Abraham who will rule over the earth. So this is the Abrahamic covenant, which speaks of a literal land, a literal descendant 
and literal blessing. All of these three things will come to pass in the King of God's choosing, who is Jesus Christ. But also there is a promise of the Davidic kingdom being eternal, an eternal descendant, an eternal king, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And this is a literal kingdom. This is not a spiritual kingdom. Jesus Christ, as the promised king, will rule in a literal, physical kingdom over this earth. And until that happens, these verses have not been fulfilled. And so John comes with baptism. Now, baptism, as I said, was a Jewish custom before John. This is something that would identify uh, those who heard a message or followed a rabbi with that rabbi or with that rabbi's message. Bapto is the Greek word for immerse, especially to change by immersion. It's the same verb used for dyeing cloths. When it is dipped into the dye, it comes out changed. This is the idea behind baptism. The Greek word used here is baptizo, which is an intensified verb, emphasizing the action of immersion. Jewish baptism was never a sprinkling. It was always complete immersion. In fact, the amount of water used was also specified. I can't remember those numbers now, though. Baptism in the Jewish custom was also done in the nude. Any article of clothing would invalidate the baptism because there would be something between you and that, that uh, confession of the message. And so this is an alignment with what John is coming preaching. It is an alignment with his message, an alignment with the promised kingdom, and a promise to receive the king whom John identifies. This is not the same as believer's baptism. But they also come confessing their sins. This is something we are told that Israel must do before the king will come. In Leviticus 26.40, Moses writes, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Now the they in the first line actually refers to a generation of Israel that is very far future from the generation that received this, and still future to us, that is the final generation of Israel that will be completely converted in the tribulation period. They will confess their iniquity, and they will confess the iniquity of their forefathers, specifically the iniquity that has not yet taken place in the text of Matthew 3. And that is the, the sin of rejecting the king of God's choosing. They will have to receive this king. So there is precedent here for the preaching of repentance and confession with the coming of the kingdom. And in fact, this will also take place in the tribulation period when Elijah, the prophet, actually returns and causes the repentance and confession movement in the tribulation that will turn, to the, turn into the regeneration of Israel before the return of Christ. Now, John's ministry started to cause a bit of an uproar. It said that all of Jerusalem was going out to his baptism. Naturally, this would gain the interest of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class in Israel. They had a uh, custom of going out and investigating messianic claims. Messianic claims were not infrequent in Israel, especially in the first century. In Acts, we see more messianic claims popping up all over the place. And so this probably at first did not excite them too much, but they had precedent and they had procedure. And stage one of their procedure was to investigate through observation. They would go and not speak a single word, not raise a single objection, not ask any questions. They would just watch. 
The purpose behind watching was to see whether or not this was a significant movement. John's baptism may have turned out to be nothing, and in which case they would just drop it. If it turned out to be a significant movement, they would come back and begin stage two of the investigation, which was interrogation. In Matthew 3, verse 7, we saw that they were coming out, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were sent by the Sanhedrin. Actually, the Sadducees would have been sent by the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees would have joined their ranks in opposing this movement. And they were coming to his baptism. Now, the NASB says coming for his baptism. This is not a great translation. They came to it. They did not receive his baptism, nor did they have any intention of receiving his baptism. And he calls them a brood of vipers. He knows that they did not come for repentance and confession because they stake their salvation on their uh, genealogy, not their faith. Because they are children of Abraham physically, they will be saved and the rest of the world will be damned. We see in Luke 3, 7, when it's talking about the crowds. Now, this would include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the crowds. It says they began... Uh, he began saying to the crowds uh, who were going out to be baptized by him. This is different than the isolated category of just Pharisees and Sadducees. They were coming out to the baptism. The crowds were coming out to be baptized. And we can see in Luke 7 that these Pharisees and Sadducees were not baptized says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So you see, the, those who were baptized by John had the proper response to God's message through Jesus. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, rejected it because they had not received that baptism. They were not aligned with the coming king. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They were not prepared for the coming of the king, nor for his message. <clears throat> now, John's baptism was different than believers' baptism. When they were baptized by John, they did not receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They, did not, they were not baptized into the body of Christ. They were not baptized into the church. The church did not exist at this time. We have evidence of this in Acts 19, when Paul, Apollos, Paul and Apollos were at Corinth, and then they moved to Ephesus, and they found a group of people who had received the baptism of John, but had never heard the end result. They had never heard that the king came. So it says, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said to him, into John's baptism. So they heard John's message. They aligned themselves with that message, but they never heard who John indicated as the coming Messiah. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism prepared them to receive the one whom John identified as the Messiah. And when they heard this message, they responded properly and received him through faith and were baptized into the church. Now, there are two other baptisms that John mentions here when confronting the Pharisees. He mentions the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. Now, there's a couple of uh, Christian groups who take this baptism of fire and say that that's the baptism of, in the tongues of fire of the Holy Spirit, and that is completely out of the context here. The baptism of fire is the antithesis to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those who do not receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit have a different and opposite destiny. They will be baptized by fire. It says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly gather his threshing floor. 
He will gather his wheat into the barn. This is an image of the kingdom. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. These are the two baptisms. Those baptized by the Holy Spirit will enter the kingdom. And those who are not baptized by the Holy Spirit because they did not receive Jesus through faith as the Messiah will be baptized by fire. So we have these three baptisms. Water, which prepares one to receive the baptism by the Spirit when Jesus comes and brings the Holy Spirit. And we have the baptism by fire for those who reject both baptisms. <clears throat> Revelation 20 shows us that baptism by fire. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the sad and most unnecessary end for any life. Now, this baptism served another very specific purpose, not just to prepare the people to receive the Messiah, but to identify the Messiah. When Jesus came to John and told John he would like to be baptized, at first John says, no, you should baptize me. Because his baptism is a baptism of repentance and confession. Now Jesus had nothing to repent of and nothing to confess. But the baptism by John was a baptism of identification, to identify oneself with that message. And so Jesus came not to confess personal sin because he had none, but to identify himself with those people who were receiving this baptism. There were six purposes in Jesus being baptized. The first was to anoint him with the Spirit for his prophetic ministry. The next was to fulfill righteousness. Is that here? Oh, this is for the first one. The Spirit anointing in Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. When did that happen? It happens at the baptism. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This happens at the baptism. Jesus is baptized to fulfill righteousness. In fact, this is the specific purpose, the specific reason that John gives, or that Jesus gives to John when John tries to stop him. Jesus answering him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus doesn't give John a lengthy explanation, but he says, This is the will of the Father. This is how we fulfill righteousness. And now the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of, we want to take from an Old Testament context because that is the context that they are operating in. And that is the righteousness of the Mosaic law. This is how Jesus will identify himself with the law and come to fulfill it. Jesus also identifies himself to Israel. It is at the baptism that his private life ends and his public life begins. In John 1.33, it says, I did not recognize him. This is John speaking. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. God used the baptism to identify to John, the one that he is supposed to identify to Israel. So this was the public identification of the Messiah. Of course, being that this was a baptism and not a different kind of uh, operation going on, this is an identification with the message. Now, this is the normal use of baptism in a Jewish context. Jesus is aligning himself together with the message of John, and in so doing, authenticates John's message. John's promise of a kingdom would be useless without a king. Jesus also identifies himself together with sinners. 
It was sinners who came to receive this baptism, specifically believing sinners. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus identified himself with sinners because he was going to die a sinner's death and take on the sins of the whole world. But lastly, Jesus is identifying himself with the believing remnant of Israel. Those are the ones who are coming and receiving John's baptism. Now, at the baptism, we get one of the fullest revelations of God since the days of creation. God is going to identify his Trinitarian nature. In Luke 3, 21 through 22, we read, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have three distinct persons operating in this text. And all can make a claim to deity. This is the Trinity, God in one essence and in three persons. Uh, These three persons are distinct yet co-equal. This concept of three in one is hard for many uh, many to grasp. I've heard many illustrations, like an egg with a yolk, a uh, whatever the white part is called, and the shell. I've heard three-in-one shampoo used as a uh, illustration. But my favorite is space, time, and matter. Can't have matter without space for it to be in. Can't have matter without a time for it to be. You can't have space without time some time for it to be. These three are three in one, different in essence, but co-equal. Now we also saw this at creation. This is why I like this illustration, because this is in the very first verse of scripture. It says, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. But then it says, the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We have all three members of the Trinity operating at creation as well. We have God speaking into creation, Jesus Christ, the Word, who was with God and who was God, effectuating that creation, and we have the Spirit energizing that creation. And it's that word here, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, that is likely the reason the Holy Spirit chose the form of a dove to come down to identify the Messiah. Oops. That verb for moving is actually shaking or gyrating or vibrating. It's the verb used of a mother bird who is resting on her eggs. In Hebrew, it's called the Merahefet. And it came to be associated specifically with a dove. And so, when God wanted to identify the Messiah by means of the Holy Spirit, he sent the Merahefet to identify him. But we also have a voice speaking out of the heavens. Now, this happens on occasion in Scripture, and it's called the Bat Call. Now, this is not uh, how you summon Batman. I know that was lame, right? But this is a Hebrew concept. It's actually translated the daughter of a voice. And it's the term they use for God speaking prophetically from the heavens. Now, interestingly enough, whenever this prophetic voice is heard from heaven in Scripture, now this is not true of rabbinic writings, but in Scripture, whenever the bat call is heard from heaven, there is a physical, visible presence or manifestation of God. At the burning bush, when God speaks, there is the glory of God in the bush. 
on Mount Sinai, when God speaks to Moses, there is the glory cloud surrounding the mountain. At the transfiguration, when God speaks from heaven, Jesus Christ is transformed into the glory that he will have in the kingdom. The bat call is heard from heaven when he is physically and visibly present on earth among his people. And so we have these three different rabbinic concepts for God that we have now divided into three distinct persons. You see, all that was necessary to understand the Trinity was present in the Old Testament. That's what the rabbis had to use. And they were making inroads in coming to this understanding. We discussed earlier the Memra and how they understood this to be different, but the same as God. They would use it in both contexts. They had this concept of a duality of God, but they wouldn't admit that because of a verse in Deuteronomy that says, Behold, the Lord our God is one. And that is also true. They had not yet grasped how this could be, that how both of these could be true statements. They also had the concept of a Holy Spirit. They did not think that it was a deity, but that it represented that deity. And they often lumped it together with the Memra. They did not understand the duality between the Memra and the Merahafet. But they had all the pieces there. They just needed someone to put it all together. And that's what the New Testament comes and does. It puts it all together. And we have here clearly the Trinity of God. The temptation of Christ is uh, in the next chapter in both Luke and in Matthew, but I kind of like Mark better, where it goes immediately from the baptism to the temptation, because the temptation actually validates everything that was stated in the baptism. Because God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the temptation shows how he was well pleasing to God and how he comes to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we do have three accounts of this temptation. We have it in Mark, Matthew, and in Luke. Mark does not tell us any of these three specific temptations. He just says that Jesus was tempted and he withstood the devil. And of course, Mark's theme, being the servant of Jehovah, is in line with this way of recording it, because it's not important how a servant completes his task. It's important that he complete his task. And Jesus did just that. He withstood the devil. He was pleasing to God. Matthew and Luke do not record these three temptations in the same order. Matthew, of course, makes no claim to chronology, but rather he is highlighting his theme of Jesus as the king. And Luke does claim to write in a chronological order. So we will take Luke's chronology of these three temptations, and there is a very good explanation for why Matthew goes out of order, because he is highlighting the kingship of Jesus and the right that he has to the throne. And so the temptation which has to do with Jesus as the king is placed in an emphatic position at the very end. So Matthew ends the temptation sequence with a punch, you could say. What were these three temptations? <clears throat> well, the first one, going by Luke's order, was the temptation to turn rocks into bread. Now, this is a temptation that we all face every day, turning rocks into bread. But he challenges him and says, if you are the son of God, do this. Now, Jesus does not have to accept Satan's premise. Often we accept Satan's premise and then feel that we have something to prove to him. We do not. And we should take Jesus' example for this. Because his response is, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now you might say it's a little off topic. His uh, response, it doesn't quite hit the mark of what Satan was saying. But it fits the mark of what God's purpose was. And you see, we don't want to answer a fool in his own folly. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is not answering Satan on his own terms, but he is declaring the full counsel of God. In Deuteronomy 8.3, which he quotes, we have this stated. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, Jesus is dragging this whole context from Deuteronomy 8 into his statement to Satan. See, Satan knows scripture, and Satan probably understands what Jesus is doing here. When we get to the second temptation, it says that Satan led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been hanged, handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. How does Jesus respond? He again quotes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 through 15 says, You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the, is in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. God is a jealous God, and Satan put in a clause here that Jesus simply could not accept. Actually, the whole thing he cannot accept. But specifically, he responds to the statement that if you subject yourself to me in worship, I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say you have no right to do so. You cannot give me the kingdoms of the earth. Because the kingdoms of the earth, here we're speaking of the hearts of men, a different kind of kingdom than Jesus Christ will receive, though he will receive the hearts of men. Satan is the ruler of this world. He is the ruler of this cosmos, the world system. Satan could hand that over to Christ. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In John 12, verse 30, Jesus says, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, Satan does not hold the title deed to this earth. When we get to Revelation chapter 4, we see that that is securely in the hands of God Almighty. God will hand the kingdoms of this earth to whom he will. But Satan can hand the hearts of those whom he is over, who have willingly subjected themselves to Satan by unbelief. He can hand that over to Christ. Christ does not deny that fact, that Satan is the ruler of this world. The third temptation, Satan leads Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. This would be about 450 feet above the surface of the ground. And he tells him that if you are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle. Again, a temptation that we face every single day. But he says, if you throw yourself down, the angels will come and see. The angels concerning you to guard you, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, Jesus has a mission to complete on this earth, and that mission ends at the cross. Satan is doing everything in his power to keep Jesus from the cross. We saw that in the, in the promise of the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus will receive the kingdoms of the earth, but he will receive them on the other side of the cross. Satan is offering him an opportunity to forego the death on the cross. Jesus refuses. Now he is offering him a means of identifying himself to Israel without the death of the cross, without his death on the cross. Because the angels would keep him from any other death besides a death on the cross. And again, Jesus responds, quoting from Deuteronomy. You're probably starting to sense a pattern here. 
And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massah. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers. Now, Jesus is bringing about all of these purposes, and it starts in the temptation. He is rebutting Satan with the very words of God's promise. Now, these temptations, these three temptations, had two purposes for Jesus Christ. The first was to be a representative of Israel. And the second was to be a representative of all believers. Starting with his representation of Israel, he stands in as the Son of God. Israel as a nation is declared to be the Son of God. In Matthew 2, 14 through 15, we saw this. It says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, if you'll remember, this comes from Hosea 11, and it is not a prophecy. That gives us pause for a moment, but when we see how is God using this statement, what is the context in Hosea? The context in Hosea is the judgment of the nation of Israel. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more, they, uh, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. Where Israel continued in rebellion against God and so uh, receives the judgment, the chastisement from God, Jesus Christ is going to stand in their place and receive that judgment instead. But in doing so, he is going to prove himself faithful and not disobedient. As well, this, judge, or this temptation took place in the wilderness. We'll remember that Israel was uh, tempted in the wilderness as well, and they continued again and again and again to run from God. Jesus does not do this. Jesus instead is faithful to God. The number 40 as well. Israel is tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, for only 40 days, but it says here in Hosea 13, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. Israel forgot God in their 40 years of wandering, but their children did remember Jesus Christ in his 40 days never forgot his dependency upon God. As well, the Holy Spirit drove Christ into the wilderness. It says in Mark 1.12, I believe, and in Isaiah 63, as well as in the entire record in uh, Exodus and Numbers, we can see that the Holy Spirit was present with Israel in the wilderness. In Isaiah 63, verse 10, we read, They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? The Holy Spirit was present for both of, both of these events. And lastly, we have these quotations from Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is the covenant book of Israel. It is the summarization of all Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and what is uh, covenanted between them and God. Jesus Christ is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy because that's exactly the book that he is fulfilling. That is the book that he is coming to be faithful to, and those are the covenants which will be fulfilled through him. He is using the word of God's promise in a way that Israel proved that they do not. 
They do not rely on the word of God, but Jesus Christ does rely on the word of God. And by doing so, he was able to withstand the devil. Jesus also stands in as a representative of all believers, because we all do experience spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, you remember all those temptations of Christ and how they tempt us every day, turning stones to bread and jumping off of steeples. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about categories of sins. And John summarizes them for us nicely in 1 John 2.16. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. We have three different categories of sin here. Three different categories of temptation that do afflict us all daily. That is the lust of the flesh, to do something contrary to God's will. The lust of the eye, to have something contrary to God's will. And the pride of life, to be something contrary to God's will. Now the lust of the flesh afflicted Christ in the temptation to turn stones into bread. It was not God's will that Jesus Christ starved to death in the wilderness. But it was also not God's will that he use his messianic power to satisfy his flesh, but rather that he depend on God. And so the temptation was to do something contrary to God's will. The lust of the eye was the temptation to receive the kingdoms of this earth without the pain of the cross, to have what it was God's will for him to have, but not to have it in the way God intended him to have it. And the pride of life was the temptation to be identified to Israel apart from the grief of being rejected by his people. Had he proven himself the Messiah by another means other than the cross, other than what God did uh, intend for him to identify himself to Israel by the baptism of John, then perhaps more would have seen him as a Messiah. In fact, many want to claim him as the Messiah, but not the Messiah of God's promising, a Messiah of their own creating. Had he demonstrated incredible power, he surely would have gained a lot of adherence, but not by faith. And so these are challenges that we all face in the, in the world. Of course, we know our enemies to be the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whenever you are tempted, it's not the devil on your shoulder because everything about this world is basically triggered or uh, set to trigger your sin nature. The flesh itself can be a temptation that we are told to deny. We deny this on the basis of God's word. We trust in God's word and so deny the flesh. The world itself, the cosmos system, being under the power of Satan is set against you. We are behind enemy lines here. We are told to flee from these temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we are told to resist the devil. Because all of this does come from the power of the devil, but the flesh through the first temptation and the sin nature, and the world by his constant influence. Oops, I didn't finish that verse range. It goes to verse 34, I believe. Through this baptism and through the temptation, Jesus Christ proved himself to be all that God said he was. All that he was intended to be for Israel and for the world, for all believers. And so when we turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, we see the second stage of investigation taking place. This means that the Sanhedrin 
estimated that John's messianic movement was significant, that whatever they saw at this baptism was a serious problem for them. So they go to investigate further, and here they can raise objections. They can ask questions. We'll see that they start with questions, and later on they're going to raise some objections of their own, because in this stage of interrogation, they are now judging, is this credible or is this incredible? And that is not going to be on the basis of scripture per se, but by their own traditions. Does he line up with Phariseeism? Does he line up with the temple polity of the day under the control of Rome? They are not going to look at God's word, but rather to themselves to judge whether or not John's baptism is pointing to the true Messiah. So they start by interrogating him, asking him questions, and they ask him to identify himself. They ask, are you the Messiah? Now they should already know the answer to this based on the statement that he made previously when they were there to observe. When he said that he is not even worthy to untie the shoes of the one who is to come. This cannot possibly be true of the Messiah because in rabbinic culture or in the uh, Jewish culture of that day, to untie someone's sandals was the lowest degradation that a person could go or could be under. You see here, Rabbi Joshua Bar Levi says, all manner of service that a slave must render to his master, a student must also render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoes. Now, you can see in other uh, places in rabbinic writings that this, um, in fact, purchases a slave to a master. If he unties his sandals, it is submitting himself uh, under the mastership of another. This was also forbidden for one Jew to do to another. A Jew could not become a slave to another Jew by untying his shoes. This was um, forbidden. And so he is saying, I am much lower than a student to a rabbi. I am much lower than a slave to a master. He says, I am basically as a Gentile slave to a Jew, which is about as low as John could put himself in that day and age. They also ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. This should settle the debate for us once and for all. We've already talked about Malachi 3.1 and 4.5, where there are two different uh, messengers coming when John says, no, I'm not Elijah, we should take that at face value. No, he is not Elijah. Elijah is yet to come. So then they ask him, are you the prophet? Now this goes back to, oops, sorry, he says, no, I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? This goes back to a statement made by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where he says, of God, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. They are expecting another prophet in the ranks of Moses. Now, John will be declared greater than Moses by Jesus, but this coming prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18 is even greater than John. This is the prophet Jesus Christ. He came as a prophet. He sits today as a high priest, and he will reign at his second coming as the king. Jesus is that greatest prophet from among the ranks of the Jews. So John is saying, no, I'm not the prophet either. Now, Elijah and the prophet here, uh, or actually rather the prophet and Messiah, are the same thing. But... Nobody knows that at this point. In John 1.25, they said, or then they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
These were the three that they assumed would have the authority to usher in this kingdom. John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is claiming that, they are, that he is now among them. And in fact, the next day, John identifies the Messiah. Now, this is the day that all of history has looked forward to, the bringing in of the king of God's choosing. It happens within a few days, if not the day after the temptations end. It says here in John 129, the next day, that's the day after the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees began their second stage of interrogation. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher in rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. His purpose was to identify this man. Notice as well that he existed before John. Now, John is six months older than Jesus. The only way for this to be true is uh, in the same way that it is true Jesus was before Abraham. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. But notice as well that he identifies him as the Lamb of God. This has two connotations from the Old Testament. The Passover Lamb of Exodus 12 and the Messianic Lamb of Isaiah 53. Exodus 12 says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This Passover lamb was a covering for Israel from the judgment that was coming in around them. Those who believed and covered their doorposts in the blood of this lamb were passed over, and judgment did not affect them because they put their trust in the blood of a sacrificial animal that pointed towards Christ. But as well, this is a picture of the messianic lamb of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says, Surely your griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus Christ is not only the atoning cover for sin, but he is the propitiation which absorbs the wrath of God for that sin. And in that way, he died for the whole world. And so in John 1, 32 to 34, he identifies himself, or he identifies Jesus and fulfills the purpose of his ministry. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And this fulfilled to the day. Daniel's prophecy of the, six, uh, the first 69 weeks. On this day in AD 27, Jesus Christ was identified to Israel. Daniel's prophecy promises the appearance of the Messiah.
And next week, we look at Jesus' initial acceptance by Israel. Eventually, they will reject him. If you're just doing the reading and not the homeworks, read John 1.35 through 4.45. If you're doing the homeworks as well, they will indicate which passages to read. And that is Lessons 28 through 37. And let's close with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you uh, for your revelation of yourself. We thank you that you give us so much detail. Uh, we know that we don't even need all of this detail, but it is beneficial to us. And it uh, gives us the ability to withstand the devil. So we thank you for Jesus Christ's righteousness upon which we can rest and the word upon which we can rest. We thank you for all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.